This podcast is sponsored by tenofthose.com. Tenofthose.com handpick the best Christian books that point to Jesus and sell them at discounted prices. I've recently enjoyed 10 Words to Live By by Jen Wilkin, a book on the Ten Commandments, which at first glance I wouldn't have chosen to pick up. But this book surprised me with how grace-fueled it was in terms of thinking about the commandments and how applicable it is for our everyday Jen, wonderfully, every chapter, there's an expanded obedience section where she helps us think through what it looks like to be obedient in our everyday lives. I really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. Grab a copy at tenabos.com. Welcome to Two Sisters and a Cup of Tea. My name is Sarah and I live in the UK and this is my sister Felicity and she lives in the US. Hi, Sarah. Hi, everyone. What is your biscuit of choice, Sarah? Well, I'm... Our uncle came to stay a few weeks ago, just before we moved, and he bought me this really quite posh um, tin of biscuits here. In fact, I've just looked on the bottom and I haven't realised, but they cost nine pounds. <laughs> I mean, that's about a pound a biscuit. Um, wow. They are Cartwright and Butler Tea Time Classic Stem and Ground Ginger Biscuits, and they're very good, but they're very spicy. Interesting. Ginger with a kick. A supreme kick, yeah. You couldn't couldn't handle a lot. Well, I can't handle a lot of these at once. That's for sure. Maybe that's a good thing though, especially if they're like a pound of biscuit. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Don't get addicted to those ones. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got? Uh, well, at the other end of the scale, really, I've got a Fox's Crunchy Cream, which uh, I think is to be quite a classic. It's one mm. of my husband's favourites. You're looking know. looking doubtful. I know. I think they're quite sweet, aren't they? Oh, yeah, but they they do live up to the name and the crunch. The cream I, is good. The cream is good. The crunch mm. is good. I had I gave one to an American this week. She thought it was outstanding. So. Oh, well, okay. Yes. Well, there you go then. Good. Um, well, can you believe it? We're, we're on to the last, last little bit of Esther. We're going to do chapters 9 and 10 together, considering um, chapter 10 is only a few lines long. Um, we are going to be doing a summary kind of episode next time, aren't we? So this isn't the final episode of the season just yet. Um, yes, but However, Felicity, it kind of felt like last week's episode could have just, I don't know, like last week's chapter, chapter eight, the end, everyone was so excited and joyful at the end. Why hasn't the book ended there? Like, do you know I what know. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> what else is there to say? Come on. There's so much excitement and joy. And it is, it feels like the narrator is maybe just uh, extended a bit beyond what he had to do. But is that the case? We should... Um, get into the text and mm. that's a, a good thing to be thinking about isn't it why do we have chapters nine and ten should we read it and see see where we yes. get yes you're gonna read i am gonna read okay chapter nine here we go on the 13th day of the 12th month the month of adar the edict demanded by the king was to be carried out on this day the enemies of the jews had hoped to overpower them but now the tables were turned and the jews got the upper hand over those who hated them The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vasatha, and the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews and Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and to get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and the morning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hanabnadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his, to his own head and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew is second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Thank you, Felicity. And wow, what what a lot going on there in that in those couple of chapters. But I guess we're starting to see as we just read the full account of that, why it's so important, because what we get there is God's righteous judgment against his enemies, don't we? And that is the necessary ending that hadn't happened so far. Would you agree? Yes. And I think that is maybe indicative. The fact that we had kind of forgotten that that needed to happen or maybe mm -hmm. didn't really want it to happen is maybe indicative of how we kind of think about judgment I don't know mm -hmm. I, I feel like 
I was not so bothered in my head when I was reading this narrative as to whether those who were against the Jews were going to be dealt with. But I think these chapters show us that it's really important that the enemies of God's people, essentially the enemies of God, are faced with justice. That That is what needs yeah. to happen. Yeah. And it's not, and it's quite a specific justice here because actually what um, we've referred back in a few episodes ago, we talked about 1 Samuel 15 as being a crucial time where King Saul did not obey the Lord in destroying the enemy and um, the Agagites. And that's where the kind of um, enmity between Haman and Mordecai um, mm-hmm. began. And actually here we get a kind of resolution of that whole story. Felicity, can you kind of draw that out for us? Yes. So if you have a look at um, chapter nine, verse 10, we see the first mention, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And then it's repeated again. I think it's maybe repeated three times Mm. in these chapters. And so that the emphasis is that they didn't do what the David and his crew, or no, Saul and his crew did back in the Agagites time. They didn't take the plunder. So actually they they have been fully obedient to God here. And I think it's worth noticing that um, the response of the Jews is against those who are intending them harm. Mm -hmm. It's not a kind of just blanket destruction, whoever crosses my path. It's actually anyone who is intending to destroy, annihilate, according to what the previous edict was. And that's why Esther's second request is so important, isn't it? Because it kind of feels a bit like, whoa, you're going a bit far there, Esther, asking for another day. But actually the specific request is that the 10 sons of Haman would be dealt with. And actually, again, that's like resolving this um, generational enmity between God's people and the Agagites, their enemy. And that is resolving that. Yes, because Haman was the descendant of the person who had got who kind of got it all wrong hadn't he so it it makes sense if you just isolate it and think about just the gruesome nature of it that doesn't really make sense but if you Mm. put it back into the big picture I think it does make sense because this is what needs to happen in order for justice to be fully done and actually for this great reversal to be fully completed there is no kind of completeness to it unless this happens And the completeness um, in terms of how God's people see the completeness of it is that they establish traditions surrounding it, don't they? So whilst we had the joy and the celebrating last time, we actually have um, the traditions of uh, Purim kind of put into writing so that generation upon generation can be celebrating it and specific days set aside for it to keep remembering their salvation. So it's again, it's a very specific way of kind of culmination of all that's happened. Yeah, which maybe picks up on what we were talking about last episode in relation to joy, because there's a lot of feasting and joy in all these kind of written things, aren't they? It's, uh, mm. These things that are being put in place are to aid the memory. And I think as they aid the memory, then to prompt celebration and joy in response to what God has done for his people. So it, it's interesting thinking about intentionally rejoicing in these things. Maybe mm-hmm. we we do benefit as well from some formal kind of reminders of that as well you know how do we actually think about Christmas how do we actually think about Easter those kind of things I don't know yeah even communion though isn't it like it's an opportunity to intentionally kind of however often you do that at church um it's setting aside that time to celebrate as as family together isn't it what your salvation um I think also just I find it fascinating going through the themes of Esther a bit and just 
the kind of feasting theme is a big thing, isn't it? And you've got mm. these kind of drunken feasts at the beginning um, of the empire. And then you're ending with this beautiful picture of feasting, um, the culmination of all of God's faithfulness and salvation. And oh, it's just wonderful, isn't it? And again, it point, yeah, it's a massive pointer forwards um, to the ultimate day um, when Jesus comes back and there will be great feasting in revelation um in the new creation but before we kind of get onto that let's just pick quickly pick up um the way like let's just quickly notice the way mordecai is raised up in this final couple of chapters i know isn't it just wonderful that we've seen mordecai who's been dismissed all the way through by haman and he went then the last we last saw him and he was um, dressed as a king and then gradually in the last in the last chapter we had then he's just been given more and more power and here he is the man isn't he he's, mm. he's the man in charge really to the extent in chapter 10 we have this the full account of the greatness of Mordecai and it's him it's it's Mordecai who is giving the orders that actually do end up saving the people while it's with the authority of the king it's Mordecai who is then um enabling it to happen and we've talked about this briefly before but just the idea that Mordecai points to the to the greater mediator mm-hmm. the greater king in that the fact that he's dressed in royal robes back in chapter eight i think it is and then here we have him raised up to such prominence and greatness it all points to the fact that he is almost king-like and as we see that we then look forward to our greater king of the greater kingdom of the greater feast of the greater celebration of all of these things it's a wonderful reminder of quite where all of this is heading in the big picture yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's such a beautiful picture. As just you know, the way that um, that the story ends, just he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews, and you just think about how that foreshadows Jesus speaking up for the welfare of all his people, for how he intercedes, for how he, um, yeah, approaches the, the throne room for, mm. on behalf of us. Like just all those pictures, it's so rich and deep, isn't it? And yet, I think whilst this is like the most wonderful consummation of everything through the book we are left longing aren't we yeah. we are left longing for the perfect king the perfect leader and so you want to read on in the bible don't you you want to yeah. read on because actually we know yeah. that Mordecai isn't the true king here we know that he's just second in command he's and we not know the king of kings yeah. we know that he's not going to last forever I think that's another thing yeah. as well because the, the the kingdoms kind of they they come and go don't they they rise and fall and so while we see the rise and the fall, which we've very much seen in in the book of Esther, mm. but actually we know that the ultimate rise, that then doesn't change. And once yeah. God's people are raised up in the last day, there's nothing that can assail that, that can, that can threaten that. That is unchanging as and is that's, our king. And that's just so exciting, isn't it? When you start to kind of see Jesus walk onto the pages of history in the New Testament and you see him, kind of you see him fleshed out this 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 the king has come the king has come um yeah. you know the beginning of mark where it's like the kingdom has come repent and believe the good news like well it is really truly good news in the context of what we've been reading um but i think also i guess one of the big questions we're left with for our own hearts at the end of this chapter and i don't know whether you felt the impact of this is just like am i longing for the second coming am i longing for the ultimate kind of reversal and the ultimate consummation of history to happen Mm, it's really challenging that isn't it because as we see the fact that we are kind of to look forwards 
Do mm. we actually look forward to that? I don't know whether I do enough. And I was thinking as well on that note, the kind of return of Jesus with the return of Jesus does come judgment as well. Mm-hmm. And how do we feel about that as we consider Jesus's return? And I think Esther helps us to see the need for judgment and, and actually the rightness of that and that God is just in that sense. So we have the delight in Jesus com- coming back and, and kind of being swept up into that feast, the ultimate feast. Mm. And with that, that all sin will be dealt with and actually gone. That is an amazing thought, isn't it? And one that we actually, I, yeah, definitely don't think about enough or long for enough. I wonder what it would look like actually to, to look more that way in our everyday lives. Yeah, I think it's praying, isn't it? It's praying to that end, Lord, would you help me to, to see this as the reality, like mm-hmm. to see that uh, that is the truth, that is what's happening. Like, you know, all of God's plan has happened apart from that. Like all of his word has been fulfilled and that's the only thing left to come, isn't it? Yeah. In terms I, of, yeah. Kind of Bible timeline. And actually, do I live like that each day? Do I pray for unbelieving family and friends in light of what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think even Esther adds to our confidence that God is definitely going to do what he said he would do, isn't it? Like we can be absolutely Mm. sure that Jesus is going to come back because God does work out his plans, even when it doesn't look like it. Because I think that's one of the things in Esther, isn't it? It's not that there's great drama and miracles all the time. It's that God's fingerprints are over every little detail. And so everything is pushing towards what he has said will happen at the end of time of Jesus' return. So I think as we, again, it comes back to that kind of bedrock of God's sovereignty as we see it more and more that he is in charge, he is in control, things are working out according to his purposes. And that gives us confidence to live in the light of the fact that Jesus will return. So it's kind of those, it's it's both of those angles, isn't it, that then contributes to us actually being able to live in the light of that and to pray eagerly for it because we know that that is the case. And just reminding one another of that truth Mm -hmm. as well, isn't it? I wonder whether if I was more intentional in texting a few friends and just kind of reminding, I don't know, if we were reminding one another of what we're living for, who we're living for, and the ultimate reality that is, you know, yeah and I think yeah the excitement in that as well like you're kind of like oh isn't it it great like yes bring it on rather than like um (laughs) there's this thing that's going to happen I'm not sure I want it but actually as we look at Esther we can be like yeah no this is really good news this is really good the king is coming yeah wow I mean what a book (laughs) what a book what a book there's so it's so rich isn't it and I think as ever we we really are just kind of skating over the surface but what a book and what an ending to see that glorious picture of Mordecai and the foreshadowing of the glorious Lord Jesus. Um, will I pray for us? Yes, do pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that your word has proved true and faithful. We thank you that all your promises are met in Christ, that all your promises are yes in him. We thank you so much that Esther has enlarged our hearts to see more and more of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the way that you've shown us that in these chapters. We thank you for the necessity and the goodness and rightness of your judgment at sin and all that is broken in the world. And we thank you that you you deal with that and you also um, express your extraordinary love at the same time um, in saving your people. We thank you that ultimately that is met on the cross. And we thank you that as we stand in at the foot of the cross, and we praise you that we are safe under your everlasting arms. We praise you so much, Lord. 
Amen. Amen. So, well, it's good that we've got one more episode to dig a bit deeper into the kind of the whole book, haven't we? So I feel like we definitely skated across the surface there, but we can uh, dig in a bit deeper as we come to our next episode. So do tune in for the next one and do be rereading, reading Esther, um, embedding it in, in hearts and minds. I think that's what we've enjoyed, isn't it? Yeah, big time. I think especially as you come to the end of the book, it's easy just to kind of close it, isn't it? But actually, it's a really good discipline. And hence why we're doing a kind of summary episode each time is to just help us really bed in what we've been learning, what we're going to take to heart. So we look forward to sharing our thoughts with you. And uh, we look forward to connecting with you on what you've taken away from the book as well. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by tenofos.com.